Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them to John chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 18 here this morning. And as we jump into the text, uh, let me read you this phrase, and, and just I'm curious as to how it hits you. Here it goes. Ready? You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. All right, let me read that again. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Now, this is a phrase uh, written by a novelist and author, Anne Lamott. Uh, it's gone around some of the circles that I uh, exist in just because we live in a season where, uh, you know, both in and out of the church, uh, we tend to be known almost more by what we hate than what we love, right? Uh, and, and people tend to be tops of the lists, right? Now, I started spinning it a little bit differently in my own mind this week as I started going, okay, you know, it's hard to say, okay, I hate this person and does God hate that person? But, but I tried to frame it differently and ask myself the same questions going, you know, could I be at risk for uh, creating God in my own image? How do I view God? And I ask myself these sorts of questions. Does God always agree with me in some of my life choices? As I envision God and how he's thinking, would he always just say, hey, this is the best place to live, right? Uh, align with what I would align with. Or he would raise uh, children the exact same way I do, or vote the same way I would, or associate with the same people, or show favor or dis- <clears throat> excuse me, dislike to the same people. Would he look functionally American like me? Would he spend money the same way, right? And those questions can kind of act as a diagnostic as to, uh, have I maybe created God or Jesus in my own image in any way, shape, or form? And the question that I asked that really kind of stung this week is, uh, is he actually able to challenge me in any of those areas? If the answer is no to that one, then we probably have created a God in our own image. Why do I go there? Well, last week we talked about, and we started walking through a few verses in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, where uh, it pushed back, or at least the portion we looked at, pushes back against this idea that we go, hey, God can't identify with me. He doesn't get me, right? But as we looked at these passages, we said, actually, Jesus Christ Putting on flesh and coming at Christmas time is, is indicative of the fact that actually he identifies with us, he relates to us, and we actually can know the God of the universe because of Christmas. Christmas makes, helps us make sense of God in that way. But you know, as I was thinking about that this week, there's also this risk, right? God did put on flesh in Jesus Christ and came to dwell among us, but, but the other or the risk that exists when when we embrace that, is sometimes we can actually go, okay, he's so much like us that we actually lose the God part of Jesus. We can sometimes contrive a God without character or a God that is void of fixed truth or one that is stripped of grace, one that looks just like you and me. I would argue that one of the defaults of our heart, if we believe in God, is to make, a, make him in our own image. So here's the other aspect of how Chris, Christmas helps us make sense of God. It frankly shows us that he is unlike you and unlike me in every way, shape, and form to the extent that he is all glorious, that he is 
completely and perfectly full of grace and truth. And he offers us grace upon grace. And so that's where we're headed this morning. So if you have your Bibles, John 1, we're going to look at 14 to 18. Feel free to follow along with me as I read. Here's what John writes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This, is, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. All right, so the outline is going to be pretty simple this morning. We're going to look at glory. We're going to look at what does it mean to be full of grace and truth. And then finally, we're going to look at this picture of grace upon grace. So first of all, let's look at this picture of glory. Did you read it or did you hear it as we read? It says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son, the Son of God. So what it's saying is, is when Jesus came to earth, He came in the complete glory of the God of the universe. All right. So let's stop and just think about that for a second. Have you, do you often stop and think about what glory actually is? I mean, let's be honest. We're a very unimpressed people these days, right? Uh, we've got all these fancy screens and concerts that have like sound that we could never imagine and vibrant colors and, and so on and so forth. We're not easily uh, in awe of much. However, this passage would like to unpack for us that, that Jesus has a sense of glory that none of us have ever experienced. And we talked about where it says Jesus became flesh. It was that picture of he, um, he tabernacled among us. It was a picture of God's people wandering in the wilderness in the book of, in the book of Exodus, where um, when they stopped, the pillar of fire, the cloud, would rest over this tent right in the middle of the camp, and they would build the rest of the camp around it. And and, and the aspect that we didn't dig into last week, but that this passage is actually pointing us to, is what actually existed when God set himself on that tent or on that tabernacle. Exodus 40 says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. All right? Now, this glory here is often referred to as the Shekinah glory of God. It was this brightness, this brilliance that, that was the actual presence of the God of the universe among his people. And so what John is saying is, in Jesus, we have that same sort of glory. All right, so let's talk about glory for a minute. Because like I said, we're an unimpressed people and we don't often think of it. But, but what does glory actually mean? Well, there's two ideas here. One is that Jesus is transcendent. All right, what does that mean? So glory means doxa. All right, doxa is the Greek term for glory. We're going to sing at the very end of this service the doxology. Right? And what that song is, is it's a, it's a liturgical song, we call it, that we sing to give God the glory that He's due. The idea of glory is that of brightness and splendor and radiance. And, and here's one that helped me this week, uh, being in the presence of the transcendent. So here's what transcendent means. It means to go beyond the range or limits of something. To go beyond the range or limits of something. So it's saying Jesus is something beyond the range or limits of anything that we could ever imagine. Now, we've probably been in the midst of something transcendent before, haven't we? Here's a picture of uh, in my life where I experienced it. I threw discus in high school. Uh, I ended up placing second in the state, actually, which might be like, wow, hey, way to go. But it was actually kind of miserable. Here's why. Because the guy who got first 
beat me for four years in track and field. And he didn't just kind of beat me. He outthrew me by 80 to 100 feet every single time. I knew from the moment I saw this dude throw my freshman year, I would never beat him. No matter how much training and weightlifting I would ever do, I would never beat him. And, and, and he was truly transcendent. He won the national championship. He went on to get, I think, first or second in college and made it to the Olympic team. He was transcendent. He was way beyond any limit that I uh, could have ever uh, met. Now, maybe sometimes we've experienced it in art. Have you ever been around just a transcendent artist, a vocalist, a painter, right? Or even engineers. We have a lot of engineers here. I've sat around some transcendent engineers, and my jaw just kind of hits the ground. My dad was an electrical engineer, and he was pretty sharp, but I remember sitting down with a guy at my 20th high school reunion. I was like, hey, what are you doing now? He's like, "Uh, I work for NASA, and I'm actually a legitimate rocket scientist. I'm like, well, I made a paper football the other day. It was a great paper. That thing flew, right? I mean, that's that's kind of where I was. And then later I found out that he's the lead engineer on the new Black Hawk helicopter, right? I was sitting amidst a transcendent human being. And what this is basically saying is, is Jesus is a million times more of that in every way, shape, and form. Here's the second thing that John says is that Jesus is unique. It says here that he is the only son. It's this picture of uniqueness that there is legitimately nothing else in all of creation that embodies glory the exact same way that Jesus does. And I told you last week, John 1 introduces a lot of themes for the rest uh, of this book. And here's a verse that you may know that has the same theme. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's nothing like Him. Well, good art, speaking of artists, can actually be lost on me entirely. Okay? Uh, here's what I mean by that. A number of years ago, I went to New York City with some uh, brothers here in the church, and we're walking around the Chelsea area of New York, which is known for its art galleries, right? And, and so, like, like, I really don't know what I'm looking at when I'm looking at art half the time. So we're walking through Chelsea, and I'm trying to do that. I'm in Chelsea. I'm going to go look at an art gallery. And so I go, and I walk in, and I'm looking at all these paintings that I just don't understand at all. And the people are looking back at me like, oh, what what interesting things is this man going to say? And I just went... 7-Eleven? Is it right over here? Or do I go right, like right around that corner? Is that where I had? I just kind of ran out of there uh, in that moment. But every now and then, I get art. And let me tell you about a moment where I actually did. My friend Dale Roberts, he's a member here at this church. He had, uh, he had me and my family into an art gallery he was doing uh, for one of his mentors, a man named Roger. And so we uh, walked in, and I, I was having that same feeling. I broke out in sweats, you know, as I walk into the art gallery. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. And so he, over the course of a couple of hours, just walked us through painting by painting. And he started just showing us kind of the, the transcendence of Roger, showing us uh, all the different nuances, what was going on in his mind. By the end of that show, I appreciated the glory of Roger's art. I did. And so in many ways, here's what I think Christmas is doing. It's kind of like Dale Roberts, where Jesus says, hey, you can't quite fathom God's glory, right, in and of itself, but but I've come to show it to you in a way that you can understand. We want to see God's glory. We study the person of Jesus. So here's just a question. In the midst of elves on shelves and presents and battling with your siblings or whatnot, about what Christmas is going to look like in a pandemic. Have we blown right by the glory of Jesus Christ? Have we slowed down and said, 
Jesus is God's glory personified so that we can see his transcendence. Are we slowing down to see it? Here's the second point. Jesus says, or John says, that he is full of grace and truth. We see that in verse 14. So here's what it means. So first of all, the term full. Full means full, okay? It means it's a totality of fullness. It's not like that tire on your car that you're trying to just get through inspection before you have to buy a new set where you go out when the weather changes and it's flat, right? Or it's not like those hotel room sinks. I don't know if you've ever tried to shave in one of those things, uh, guys. But, you know, you fill it with water, you pull the little thing, you get a couple swipes and you look and it's empty, right? You're like, ugh, it doesn't hold water, right? What John is saying is, Jesus, there's no holes in that bucket. That he, he can hold just the right amount of grace and truth, and it doesn't go anywhere. Fundamentally different than you or than, I, or than me. And it says he's full of grace and truth. Now, now here's what that's getting at. And most commentators would say uh, John is looking back to a passage in the book of Exodus where God's people are, again, wandering through the wilderness uh, they're camped out there at the base of this mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses goes up uh, on the mountain to get God's truth in written form in the law. God's presence is on the top of the mountain. There's a storm. God's people get squirrely because Moses has taken a while to come down. And they're thinking, that God's terrifying. We can't control him. And we think Moses got zapped up there somewhere. So we need to come down here and make a God that we can control. So give me all your earrings and your rings. We're going to melt it. We're going to make a golden calf. And we're going to worship a God that we can control. Well, that's that's cheating on God. That's spiritual infidelity. And God was angry. Moses was angry. He comes down off the mountain and Moses goes back up on the mountain. And, and that's where we talked about last week. God covered the eyes of Moses. And Moses is pleading with God, don't kill him. Have mercy. And so it's in the midst of this that God utters these words. And, and just stop and think about, are these the words you would have expected God to utter in the midst of such rebellion? Here's what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sins, but who by no means clears the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers from the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. So here's what he's saying. In the midst of this, what most people would say John is pointing at where he says, full of grace and truth, are these words where it says, he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love in Hebrew is this term hesed, right? And his hesed love or his steadfast love is, is a picture of his grace and his mercy. And grace is usually what is used to capture that picture. That he's abounding in it, overflowing with it. And then this term faithfulness is the term met in Hebrew. And, and that term met means reliability, stability, and truth. And so what John is essentially saying is, is, is Jesus' most glorious aspects, right? There's lots of reasons why God is glorious. But his glory is most uh, intensely seen in his grace and in his truth. So let's talk about briefly this idea of truth as faithfulness or stability. And this is what we said a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Friends, what the Bible holds before us is truth. God's truth is always objective, right? Meaning it's fixed and it's external, right? 
And so what it means it's not is it's not subjective. It doesn't change with our emotions. It doesn't change with our culture. It's fixed in the person of Jesus, in his character. And it's also not internal. We cannot find truth here. We have to find truth outside of ourselves. And what John holds before us throughout this book, starting here, is where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, His grace is that steadfast love, mercy that we don't deserve. It's the unmerited favor that we can't earn. Now, I love that line where it says, my heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend. His grace and truth working together is a picture of just that. Our hearts do need truth. We are far worse than we ever imagined. But it also needs that grace that in Jesus Christ we are far more loved than we could ever have hoped. Can we just stop for a second and talk about how different that is than the culture we're living in right now? We're either saying truth is totally relative and subjective or we are weaponizing it to destroy anyone who disagrees with us. There is a complete absence of that supernatural grace that we see poured out for us in Jesus Christ. And so first of all, can I just pause us to say, can you consider the truth and the reality of how broken and far from God we are on our own? But then also consider the grace that's offered to us in Jesus' coming and His life and death and resurrection. And then can we also this week beg the Lord to show us that so that we can demonstrate that when we head into what feels like the most divided family circumstance probably since the Civil War, right? Where families are ready to take up arms against one another over vaccines and masks and politics and whatever else we can contrive right now to go to war over. Can we beg the Lord to say, Lord, help us to be truthful, but remarkably gracious, more than we could muster on our own. Here's a third point. Is this picture of grace upon grace that we see in verse 16. For from His fullness, from that bucket that doesn't leak any truth or any grace, from that fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Think of a fountain, right, that fills up at the top and just overflows and cascades down. That is a picture of what John is saying. Here's the grace that flows from Christ towards you and towards me, those of us who do not deserve it. A friend of mine uh, talks about how they grew up around water, which I did too, and they just reminded me of, of, of the importance of water in my life. You know, when, when there's just kind of a time where I'm feeling unsettled, uh, it's really good for me to go stand by the ocean, stand by the bay at my mom's house. And as I stand there, there is just something about watching those waves just lap along the shoreline. And that is a picture of the grace that is continually aimed at us because of Jesus Christ. We can't undo that relentless grace that will never stop coming, just like those waves never stop poured out for us. Now, there's a second way to actually read this. There's a little bit of a debate with people who are far smarter than I am. Where it says grace upon grace, that upon word in Greek is usually epi, right? 
Uh, and the term is actually anti in the Greek, which can be interpreted as a pawn, but, but the term anti can have this sense of instead of. And some people would point to verse 17, where it says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It's saying that law was kind of a, a lowercase grace, right? That the law is not all bad that he gave to Moses, that the law is actually God's way of protecting us and being gracious to us, showing us what is harmful to us. And it's also gracious to us because it, 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 it exposes our need for Jesus when we fall short. But that when Jesus came, grace in all caps showed up. Because what the law can never do is it can never save us. We can never keep it enough to be saved. And so it's saying we had grace before in the Mosaic law, but now we've received greater grace. A superabundance of grace. Let me end with this story. This week I read something that was hard but glorious. It was a story about a man named Richard Houston. He was a police officer in Mesquite, Texas. He lost his life while intervening in a domestic dispute. As he was talking to the man and woman as they fought, the man shot him. And then the perpetrator was also wounded during uh, the scuttle. And so uh, essentially they fast-forwarded. I saw this clip of his 18-year-old daughter Shelby giving his eulogy at his memorial service. And she talked about uh, how her and her dad used to have a conversation about how her dad has lost many friends on the force in similar ways. And she would say to him, she always had a hard time with how the suspects were dealt with. Largely, they were neutralized and, and often killed in those circumstances. And she articulated, I always wanted justice for them, but my heart ached for the ones who were killed to face the reality of dying without Jesus. People used to tell her you would feel differently if it happened to you. And she said, well, now it has, and it actually doesn't feel any different. She said, part of me wishes I could despise the man who shot my father, but I can't get any part of my heart to hate him. When I heard that this man was in stable condition, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that sometime down the road, I may get some time to sit down with the man who shot my father, not to scream at him, not to yell at him, not to scold him, but simply to tell him about Jesus. Friends, that line where she said, I wanted justice, but my heart ached for the ones who were killed, it feels like a picture of Christmas. Jesus, full of truth, right? He wants justice, and he actually demands it. But also grace. His heart ached to be with us. And so he came at Christmas. And Shelby is a picture of someone who has experienced grace upon grace. As it flows to her, it flows out of her. That's what happens when we are captured by the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, friends, this Christmas, may the Lord open our eyes to see God's glory in Jesus, that we will see him as being one who is perfectly full of grace and truth. And may we also experience his grace upon grace that flows towards us. Let me close this in prayer. Well, Lord, as we finish this time and as we head into this Christmas week, I beg you to open our eyes to see your glory, to see your perfectly balanced grace and truth. And Lord, to also know that in Jesus, your grace upon grace flows towards us. Father, for the heart that does not know that grace, Father, that is stuck in guilt or shame or anger 
or whatever it may be, Lord, will you open that heart to your grace this morning? And Father, for those of us who have overly defaulted to either being so gracious we don't believe that there's truth, or Lord, so truthful that that we just can't bring ourselves to offer grace any longer, convict us and change us as we stare at you, King Jesus. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.